Hello, and welcome to Misinformation, a trivia podcast for ladies and gents who love cool trivia. Sticking it to annoying teams at Pub Quiz. We're your hosts. I'm Lauren. And I'm Julia. Hey, Jewel. You know what we haven't addressed yet? What? What haven't we addressed? It's October. Oh, yeah. It's the, it's sp- the spookiest it's month. It's the spookiest month. Yeah. Um, there is a guy I follow on Instagram. His name is Mark Kanamura. And he's a dancer and he is super gay. And I love him so much. I love him more than anything. And he welcomed October with a dance. And then he was dressed like uh, a witch. And then he said, Hey, October, you spooky bitch. And I was like, Yes, October's a spooky bitch. So this is the spookiest bitch. <laughs> October, the spookiest bitch. Exactly. Month. Yes, exactly. exactly. And so um, I know you know this, and probably many other people know this about me. I don't like scary things oh yeah i don't like scary halloween yeah. i don't like horror movies yeah neither do i i don't like monsters no not none of that you none don't like zombies e. oh my god don't even give it i won't e. get you started on et um but one thing that i guess some people do find spooky that i actually do like is cemeteries oh cemeteries are great i love visiting cemeteries mm-hmm. like especially if i'm in a you know a, even sometimes it's like a some places have them as like a tourist attraction oh, yeah, even of course. so you know there's all these there's all these um the resting places of people mm-hmm. and i like to think of cemeteries as like a place of memory yes so it's a great i enjoy being yeah. at cemeteries so that's what this episode is yay it's the spookiest month and we're covering the graveyard shift <laughs> Hey, cemeteries, you spooky bitches. Yeah, keep this up. We'll see. <laughs> we'll see how long you can do this for. Oh, you. I know. Uh, I you know. know. You. All right. Now, I, no, it's serious. <laughs> serious historical stuff. Serious history. We're being some serious historians. All right. Tell me about cemeteries. So, as it turins out, I am a taffophile. Oh, <gasps> no, Julia. No. Why are you telling me this? A T-A-P-H-O. P-H-I-L-E, a taphophile, is, um, describes an individual who has a passion for and enjoyment of cemeteries, epitaphs, gravestone rubbings, photography, art, and history of famous deaths. Cool. Also called a tombstone tourist or a cemetery tourist. So the word cemetery is from Greek for sleeping place, and this implies that the land is specifically designated as a burial ground. Uh, the term graveyard is often used interchangeably with cemetery, but a graveyard primarily refers to a burial ground within a churchyard. Um, another word you'll come across when you read about cemeteries is the word columbarium, um, which is a place where you can store urns within a cemetery. Oh, okay. Um, also, the word cenotaph, um, C-E-N-O-T-A-P-H, um, means empty tomb. So sometimes you'll you'll come across a cenotaph within a cemetery, which is kind of more like a memorial marker than okay. the resting place of a person, but it, it, it comes up. So a history of burials. Um, archaeologists can tell that early humans buried their dead in caves and in fields. Great. Great. Uh, by the seventh century, in places under control of the Catholic Church, especially in Europe, bodies were usually buried in a mass grave until they had decomposed. And then the bodies were then exhumed and stored in ossuaries, either along the boundary walls of the cemetery or within the church under floor slabs and behind walls. Yes. So an ossuary is kind of like a bone storage area. It's a bone yard. Yep, yeah. Basically. Mm-hmm. Um, in most cultures, those who were vastly rich had important professions or were part of the nobility or were any of other high social status were usually buried in individual crypts inside or beneath their relevant place of worship. So um, as Americans, if we go and tour places in Europe and we're like walking around a church and you see like actually this what you're walking on is actually like a tombstone and there's someone buried yeah. under it. Like Americans will get like super freaked out, but this is, you know, just Common just how it was. Yeah. By the 19th century, there was a move to shift cemeteries from churches. So um, thanks to, you know, rapid population growth in the early stages of the industrial revolution, um, continued outbreaks of infectious disease, increasingly yeah, yeah. limited space in graveyards for new burials. So instead of in church graveyards, completely new places of burial were established away from heavily populated areas mm-hmm. and outside of old towns and city centers. So many new cemeteries became municipally owned or were run by their own corporations, which we'll get to, oh. and became independent from churches and their churchyards. During the 19th century, garden cemeteries began to 
disappear. These encouraged visitors to stay and visit in the cemetery. So people had picnics and concerts and general activities. And they basically treated these locations as a type of public park. Oh, cool. Yeah. So um, though uncommon today, family or private cemeteries were a matter of practicality during um you know, the settlement of America. Um, If a municipal or religious cemetery had not yet been established in that area, settlers would seek out a small plot of land, usually in wooded areas bordering their fields, to begin a family plot. And sometimes several families would arrange to bury their dead together. So while some of these sites later grew into true cemeteries, many were forgotten after a family moved or died out. Um, so yeah, especially if you're in like rural areas and you might be driving down a road and you'll, you know, see like house, 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 and then like a little fenced in cemetery. Cause it used to be yeah, part of this bigger thing of land and, you know, it was moved. They originally made them away from like the, where the houses were and stuff. But yeah, there's, um, on my way out to my parents' house, mm-hmm. there's a lot of those little tiny cemeteries cause it's a very rural area in Northern New York and, uh, Northwest New York. And um, there is a cemetery, a, a fairly large-ish mm-hmm. one, that's in the middle of a field, like a cornfield, yeah. that's like sectioned off and is like being taken care of by the state. And there's like trees and stuff, but it's in the middle of a very huge cornfield. And when they do, um, when it's when they're plowing or when like the corn yeah. is not there, you can see it, and it's so weird to see like <sighs> this weird patch of green that's like a cemetery in the middle of a field. It's pretty cool yeah. to see. Yeah. Oh, cool. Um. And not to freak you out, but mm. apparently there are around 100 billion dead people currently buried or uh. otherwise stored on this planet. Oh my God, they're everywhere. <laughs> I can feel them touching anyway. me. <laughs> October Y, you spooky bitch. <laughs> you spooky bitch. <laughs> um, another interesting thing to talk about is grave robbers. Yes. Okay. So the act of robbing graves has been with us since basically burial began. Mm-hmm. Um, if a body is observed to have been buried with any jewelry or any other types of valuables, oh, yeah. word gets around. Um, another problem. In the 19th century, medical education was making great strides, especially in the UK, and professors needed cadavers for demonstrations and lectures. So, oh, anyway, you might get squeamish for like, I don't know, 46 seconds Bring while I talk about this. So just a warning. Um, so, however, the only legal way to procure bodies at that time was after criminal executions. And there oh. just weren't enough of these at the time. Sure, yeah. So this gave rise to the profession of body snatching. And grave robbers could make a pretty penny for their clandestine efforts. Oh. Um, sometimes grave robbers actually couldn't keep up with the demand um, just by digging up fresh graves. And a few resorted to murder to supply more anatomical <laughs> specimens. But that's a topic for another day. Oh, my God. So... To protect their loved ones, families employed a range of weird technology to guard against unwanted disinterment of their loved ones. Uh, These included safeguards such as mort safes. Um, The first mort safe was made around 1816. They came in a number of different designs, but one thing they had in common was their weight, which would make exhumation of the recently deceased impossible. Mm. A mort safe um, was a complex of iron rods and plates descending into the ground and rising above it. Above the ground, they were weighted either with stone or iron. Um, There aren't many extant Mort safes for one reason, not that many were actually needed because they were reusable. Um, so within a within a graveyard, two people held the different keys needed to unlock the mort safe and remove it to ensure that neither could release it without the other. After a period about five to six weeks, the body inside the coffin would be so badly decomposed to be no use whatsoever to the ana- oh, to the anatomist. Yeah, yeah. So the mort safe could then be moved to the next fresh grave. I see. I see. How interesting. Yeah. Oh, that's cool. Yeah, but there are definitely still some that exist, especially over in the UK. When you're in some of the older cemeteries, you get a chance to see them there. Um, There were also cemetery torpedoes. What? Um, Philip K. Clover, a Columbus, Ohio artist, patented an early coffin torpedo in 1878. His instrument functioned like a small shotgun secured inside the coffin lid in order to prevent the unauthorized resurrection of dead bodies, as the inventor put it. If someone tried to remove a buried body, the torpedo would fire out a lethal blast of lead balls when the lid was pried open. Another guy from Ohio, um, Thomas and Howell, patented a grave torpedo of his own in December 1881. Unlike the Clover torpedo, Howell's gadget was a shell buried above the coffin and wired to it. So this worked like a landmine and would detonate when thieves ran into the wiring. (laughs) No reports of how many people ever actually use these, but the patents exist and, you know, there's, you know, mentions of things like that. That seems extreme. It seems extreme. Yeah. (laughs) 
Um, other aspects of the mortuary industry in the U.S. would have deterred body snatching, including burial in sealed shipping crates used as makeshift vaults, the use of hidden locking mechanisms on casket lids, and the use of cast iron coffins. Oh, my gosh. Ugh, can you imagine if you had to, like... Bury them? Yeah. Yeah. It's crazy. Um Briefly, common symbols on gravestones. So yeah. the U.S. Genealogy and History Network has a really detailed page of tombstone symbols, especially for military and religions. And another site called thecemeteryclub.com has another interesting page covering themes, icons, and other symbolism. Um, so some of the ones I'm going to mention, I got actually from a Mental Floss and Atlas Obscura article, which had a really helpful infographic. So we'll tweet that out because it's it's pretty interesting. So um, some common symbols you'll see and what they mean. Um, the winged skull means mm. the fleetingness of life and your sure. soul soaring into the afterlife. Yeah. Um, clasping hands is a final farewell, especially Aww. on the tombs of a married couple where one has died and the other is still alive. A lamb is typically seen on the tombs of children, symbolizing oh. innocence. A dove is usually on the graves of women who died young, representing peace and purity. A snapped rose, which this, I thought this was interesting. So the bloom of the rose symbolizes the age of a lady when she died. So like if it's a rosebud, that means she was younger. If it's a full oh. bloom, that means she was older, etc. And the thorny stem that is snapped indicates that she died too soon. Oh my gosh. And uh, tree stump is a, a life cut off short and suddenly. Um, wheat. Uh, like she's the wheat or oak leaves uh, mean means a long life harvested by the reapers when it was time. Oh, wow. Um, and then a draped urn, which you'll see in Victorian mm -hmm. cemeteries. It's a visual of the separation between the living and the dead and a protective shroud for the soul. Man, those Victorians. So goth. Loved death. They sure oh, they did. they loved it. So good. Those are great. Yeah. I did. I had no idea. That's so interesting. Yeah. Cause I mean, if you walk around older cemeteries, you'll kind of, you you know, you'll see kind of common things emerge and you're like, oh, well, you know, did they pick that for a reason? Or, mm -hmm. you know, you just thought that that flower looked cool or yeah, whatever. Exactly. But that's really cool. Yeah. So I'm going to talk about some traditional cemeteries across the globe that really you should know. Great. Ready? Mm -hmm. uh, the Cimetière Père Lachaise, uh, Père Lachaise Cemetery, is the largest cemetery in the city of Paris. Um, each year, Père Lachaise Cemetery has more than three and a half million visitors, making it the most visited cemetery in the world. It's also noted for being the first garden cemetery, as well as the first municipal cemetery. Oh. Um, it takes its name from the confessor to Louis XIV, uh, Père François de Lachaise, who lived in the Jesuit house um, that was there around 1682. Père Lachaise Cemetery was opened in May 1804. The first person buried there was a five-year-old girl named Adelaide Payard de Villeneuve. Unfortunately, her grave no longer exists. Napoleon, who had been proclaimed emperor by the Senate three days earlier, had declared during the consulate that every citizen has the right to be buried regardless of race or religion. Uh, during 1804, the Père Lachaise contained only 13 graves, but soon after, the cemetery administrators devised a marketing strategy and, with a lot of fanfare, organized the transfer of the remains of 17th century French storyteller Jean de La Fontaine and the playwright Moliere. After that, they saw an uptick in burials. People were literally dying to get in. Uh, <laughs> That's the last time I'll make this joke. Um, <laughs> in another great spectacle of 1817, the purported remains of the legendary 12th century couple, theologian Pierre Abelard and his lover, Heloise, <gasps> um, you know, the young nun and writer, uh, they sure. were also transferred to the cemetery. You know, not Abelard and Heloise? It's like so. a very, uh, it's a very well-known French romance story. I don't. It is from the 12th century, Abelard I, and Heloise. Um, so, uh, you know, they had this big thing. Oh, yes, we are moving the remains of this wonderful loving couple. I mean, it's a really messed up story. Like he was a teacher and she was a nun. And also she was maybe kind of young and maybe he shouldn't have been having an affair. Anyway, but anyway, it's romantic. It, it's a great romantic story. So by tradition today, lovers or lovelorn singles leave letters at the crypt in tribute to the couple or in hope of finding true love. That's so French. Um, yeah. So people... They were clamoring to be buried among these famous citizens. Of course. And records show that the Père Lachaise contained more than 33,000 graves during 1830. Wow. Uh, Père Lachaise was expanded five times during the 19th century. As of 2018, there are more than one million bodies buried there and many more in the columbarium, which holds the remains of those who had requested cremation. The rules to be buried in a Paris cemetery are rather strict. People may be buried in one of these cemeteries only if they die in the French capital city or if they lived there at the time of their death. Okay. Um, there is a waiting list to be buried in Père Lachaise. Jeez. Notable burials there include 
Honoré de Balzac, Sarah Bernhardt, Georges Bisset, Jacques-Louis David, Eugène Delacroix, Gustave Doré, Isadora Duncan, Paul what? Ducasse, Theodore Jericho, Sophie Germain, who was an early French mathematician, physicist, and philosopher, uh, Joseph Ignace Guillotin. Remember him? Oh, yeah. Joseph Ignace Guillotin, the inventor of the of guillotine. The guillotine. <laughs> um, Jean-Auguste Dominique Incre, uh, René Lalique, Marcel Marceau. Oh, my I'm God. Miming She's miming now. right now. <laughs> um, Georges Méliès, Amadeo Medigliani, Jim Morrison, Victor Noir, who was the journalist killed by Pierre-Napoleon Bonaparte in a dispute over a duel. Oh. Also, Edith Payoff, Camille Pissarro, Marcel Proust, Gertrude Stein, Alice B. Toklas, Raphael oh Trujillo, and Oscar Wilde. So... Wow. A lot of uh, very famous French artists and writers. A lot of very famous a lot French of famous people. Artists and writers not of the French persuasion. Yes. That's yes. very interesting. So um, I've been to Père Lachaise a few times. My mom and I were there last year. Um, so there's not a lot of like signage when you're in it to like okay. be like, it's not like Oscar Wilde is this way. Sure, yeah. But there are some graves that people go to and visit, like Jim Morrison especially. Oh, of course. Um, Victor Noir, it, so he was the journalist that was killed in a duel, mm-hmm. in a dispute over a duel, sorry. And so his... Um, his tomb is kind of like a life-sized statue of him laying oh, okay. down like in the throes of death. Wow. And apparently people go there and rub his lips and his like crotch area for good luck. So it's like this bronze thing. Oh my God, that's but, like, so French. like his mouth and his crotch are so like, they're so, you know, yeah, worn shiny. down that they're like gold. It's like gold now. Cool, um, cool, cool. People go and like kiss Oscar Wilde's grave, like leave like lip prints all over it. And Jim Morrison's... Oh my God. Headstone has been stolen like more times than like <laughs> anything else. It's, it's wild. That's crazy. So we're going to stay in the city of Paris for a minute. Okay. Um, the catacombs of Paris Ooh. is a system of underground ossuaries in Paris that hold the remains of more than 6 million people. So while the ossuary comprises only a small section of the underground tunnels there, Parisians presently often refer to the entire tunnel network as the catacombs. Mm-hmm. Um, have you ever seen photos of them? I have. It looks okay. so metal. It's Yes. Yes, it is. <laughs> I, yeah, I've, I have also been there too. Oh. Not to brag. Um, so like I said earlier, the church graveyards were filling up. Um, to make room for more burials, the long dead were exhumed and their bodies packed into roofs and walls of galleries inside cemetery walls. But by the end of the 18th century, the central burial ground of the Holy Innocent Cemetery in Paris was a six-foot-high mound of earth filled with centuries of Parisian dead, plus the remains from both the hospital and the morgue nearby. Oh my god. Other Parisian parishes had their own burial grounds, but the conditions in Les Innocents Cemetery were the worst. A series of poorly administered decrees limiting the use of the cemetery did little to help the situation, and it wasn't until the late 18th century that it was decided to create three new large-scale cemeteries um, on the outskirts of town, so like more like suburban cemeteries, mm-hmm. and to condemn all existing parish cemeteries within city limits. So these city graveyards would be dug up and deposited into the underground ossuaries where Paris's ancient stone mines had once operated. So Cemeteries whose remains were moved to the catacombs included St. Innocence, which was the largest by far with about 2 million buried over 600 years of operation. St. Antienne de Grey, one of the oldest, Madeleine Cemetery, Erancy Cemetery, used for the victims of the French Revolution, and Notre Dame de Blanc Manteau. The catacombs in their first years were a disorganized bone repository, but the director of the Paris Mine Inspection Service had renovations done in 1810 that transformed the underground caverns into a visitable mausoleum. In addition to directing the stacking of skulls and femurs into patterns that you can still see today, he used cemetery decorations that he could find to complement the walls of bones. Also created was a room dedicated to the display of the various minerals found under Paris and another showing various skeletal deformities found during the catacombs creation and renovation. He's like, look at this weird bone. Basically like, (laughs) ooh. Um, in 2004, Parisian police discovered a fully equipped movie theater in <gasps> one of the caverns of the catacombs. Oh, that's cool. It was equipped with a giant cinema screen, seats for the audience, projection equipment, film reels of recent thrillers, and film noir classics, oh my a God. fully stocked bar, and a complete restaurant with tables and chairs. What? The source of its electrical power and the identity of those responsible remain unknown. <laughs> they didn't let him keep it? Did they take it out? I mean, it's dangerous. I guess, I guess so. Like, but... <laughs> Oh my God. Could you imagine you're on like the secret list to be in like the, the secret bone theater and bone room. Yeah. To the bone room when I was, okay. So I'm sorry. Side note. When I was little, my sister and I would call skeletons bone men. 
Oh, that's yeah. cute. Like that's a bone man. So now to this day, whenever I see a um like a Halloween decoration, uh-huh. I'm like, oh, that's a bone man. Oh. Like I still say that. It's very cute. Um Josh listens to some podcast that got him to say Skellingtons for Skellington. And now that's what I call Yeah. Skellington. Skellingtons. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, the other famous catacombs you might know are the ancient catacombs of Rome, yes. um, of which there are about 40, and some have only been discovered in recent decades. Oh, wow. So the Christian catacombs are extremely important for the art history of early Christian art, since they contain the great majority of examples from about before 400 AD in fresco and sculpture, as well as gold glass medallions. Um, the Jewish catacombs are similarly important for the study of Jewish culture at this period. Um, hopping across the English Channel over to London. Yeah, okay. Westminster Abbey. Of course. So formally titled the Collegiate Church of St. Peter at Westminster. This is a large, mainly Gothic Abbey church in the city of Westminster, London, just to the west of the Palace of Westminster. It is one of the UK's most notable religious buildings and the traditional place of coronation and burial site for English and later British monarchs. The recorded origins of the Abbey date to the 960s or early 970s when St. Dunstan and King Edgar installed a community of Benedictine monks on the site. Construction of the present church began in 1245 on the orders of King Henry III. Since the coronations in 1066 of both King Harold and William the Conqueror, every English and British monarch except Edward V and Edward VIII, who were never crowned, has been crowned in Westminster Abbey. Oh, cool. Since the Middle Ages, British aristocrats were buried inside chapels, while monks and other people associated with the abbey were buried in the cloisters and other areas. Uh, one of these uh, poets was Geoffrey Chaucer, and soon after, other poets, writers, and musicians were buried or memorialized around Chaucer in what became known as Poet's Corner. Um, so the folks you'll see there include William Blake, Robert Burns, Lord Byron, Charles Dickens, John Dryden, T.S. Eliot, John Keats, Rudyard Kipling, Jenny Lind, uh, John Milton, Lawrence Olivier, Alexander Pope, Percy Bysshe Shelley, and Alfred Lord Tennyson, and William Wordsworth. Um, Mm. It became one of Britain's most significant honors to be buried or commemorated at Westminster Abbey. And the practice of burying national figures in the Abbey began under Oliver Cromwell in 1657, which has spread to include generals, admirals, politicians, doctors, and scientists. Also in London, you have Highgate Cemetery. Um, So there are approximately 170,000 people buried in around 53,000 graves across the West Cemetery and the East Cemetery at Highgate. Um, The cemetery opened in 1839 as part of a plan to provide seven large modern cemeteries, which are now known as the Magnificent Seven, um, around the outside of central London. Uh, The inner city cemeteries, mostly the graveyards attached to individual churches, again, had long been unable to cope with the number of burials and were seen as a hazard to health and an undignified way to treat the dead. Highgate, like the others of the Magnificent Seven, soon became a fashionable place for burials and was much admired and visited. The Victorian attitude toward death and its presentation led to the creation of a wealth of Gothic tombs and buildings. Many prominent people are buried here, including Karl Marx, Douglas Adams, George Eliot, a.k.a. You know, her real name is Marianne Evans. Sure. Um, Henry Gray, the author of Gray's Anatomy. Oh, uh, look at that. Michael Faraday. All oh. of the Dickenses except Charles, who is at Westminster Abbey. Sure. And also George Michael. Oh, yay. Mm-hmm. George Michael. Good. I'm yeah. glad. Now we're back in America. Okay, here Let's we go. go. America. Swim, swim, swim. Arlington National Cemetery. Yes. It's our U.S. military cemetery. That's a lot of syllables. Military cemetery. Yeah. It's hard. Um, in Arlington County, Virginia, across the Potomac River from Washington, D.C. It's controlled by the U.S. Department of the Army, which is a component of the U.S. Department of Defense. Um, it was established during the Civil War on the grounds of Arlington House, which had been the estate of Confederate General Robert E. Lee and his wife, Mary Anna Custis Lee. Oh, I who didn't was know a, that. Who was actually a great-granddaughter of Martha Washington. Oh, um, in July 1862, Congress passed legislation authorizing the U.S. federal government to purchase land for national cemeteries for the military dead, and they put the U.S. Army Quartermaster General in charge of this program. In May 1864, Union forces suffered large numbers of dead in the Battle of the Wilderness in Virginia, and Quartermaster General Montgomery C. Meigs ordered that an (laughs) examination of eligible sites be made for the establishment for a large new national military cemetery. Within weeks, his staff reported that Arlington Estate was the most suitable property in the area. The property was high and free from floods, which might unearth graves. Mm. It had a view of the District of Columbia. Also, it was a really pretty pleasant view, pretty great place to be. It was also the home of the leader of the armed forces of the Confederate States of America. And denying Robert E. Lee use of his home after the war was a valuable (laughs) political consideration. Oh, so So it was just kind of like, it was real win-win for them, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. 
So the first military burial at Arlington for William Henry Christman was made on May 13th, 1864. The government acquired Arlington at a tax sale in 1864 for $26,800, equal to about $420,000 today. But in 1874, Custis Lee, who was the heir under his grandfather's will, passing the estate in trust to his mother, sued the United States, claiming ownership of Arlington. And in 1882, the U.S. Supreme Court ruled 5-4 in Lee's favor in United States v. Lee, deciding that Arlington had been confiscated without due process. After that decision, Congress returned the estate to him, and he turned right back around and sold it to the government for $150,000, equal (laughs) to like $3.3 million in today's dollars. Good for him. So, yeah, it worked out for him. Yeah. Uh, The land land then became a military reservation. Uh, President Herbert Hoover conducted the first National Memorial Day ceremony in Arlington National Cemetery on May 30th, 1929. The Tomb of the Unknown Soldier stands at the top of a hill overlooking D.C. The tomb was completed and opened to the public in 1932. Originally named the Tomb of the Unknown Soldier, other unknown servicemen were later entombed there, and it became known as the Tomb of the Unknowns, though it has never like officially been labeled that. Mm-hmm. Uh, the soldiers entombed there are the unknown soldiers from World War One, World War II, and the Korean War. Oh, okay. In 1984, the unknown soldier of the Vietnam War was interred there, but in 1998, the remains of the Vietnam unknown were disinterred and identified as those of Air Force First Lieutenant Michael J. Blassie, whose family had them reburied near their home in Missouri. It has been determined that the crypt of the at the Tomb of the Unknowns that contain the remains of the Vietnam Unknown will remain empty. So there are actually three t- three unknown soldiers buried. I see. There. Okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Tomb of the Unknowns has been perpetually guarded since July 1937 by the U.S. Army. The 3rd U.S. Infantry Regiment, also called the Old Guard, began guarding the tomb on April 6, 1948. There is a meticulous routine that the guard follows when watching over the graves. The tomb guard marches 21 steps down the black mat behind the tomb then turns, faces east for 21 seconds, then turns and faces north for 21 seconds. He then takes 21 steps down the mat and repeats the routine until the soldier is relieved of duty at the changing of the guard. What? How long does he have to do that for? An, an eight-hour shift? A shift. A shift? <laughs> yeah. Oh, my gosh. Yep. I mean, I guess you really get it down. Like, you yeah. know 21 seconds. You're not counting. Yeah, you probably are singing songs like, in your head, yeah. and you know, you know when. I think you get a lot of thinking done. You know, probably you're like, what about that patent for that laser that I'm going to do? That would be great. (laughs) Oh, man. Um, After each turn, the guard executes a sharp shoulder arms movement to place the weapon on the shoulder closest to the visitors to signify that the guard stands between the tomb and any possible threat. 21 was chosen because it symbolizes the highest military honor that can be bestowed. The 21 gun salute. Mm. Um, Due to limited space, only honorably discharged members in certain categories are eligible for burial in Arlington National Cemetery. This includes members who died on active duty in their immediate family, army retirees in their immediate family, recipients of the Purple Heart or Silver Star and above, and any honorably discharged POW who died after November 30th, 1993. There are no fees or costs for a burial or inurement. However, all costs associated with the preparation of the remains, casket or urn, and shipping in the remains to the D.C. area are at the expense of the estate unless the deceased is currently on active duty. Five state funerals have been held in Arlington. Presidents William Howard Taft and John F. Kennedy and Kennedy's two brothers, Senator Robert F. Kennedy and Senator Edward Ted Kennedy and General of the Army's John J. Pershing. Remember his nickname? I do. Mad Dog Pershing. Knickerbocker Pershing. Um... What is it, Julia? Blackjack. Blackjack. It is Blackjack. I'm it's sorry. Okay. You can go back to our generally speaking episode if you need a refresher on Julia who Pershing is. Julia did a very nice job. Um, so whether or not they were wartime service members, U.S. presidents are eligible to be buried in Arlington since they oversaw the armed forces as commanders in chief. Among the most frequently visited sites in the cemetery is the grave of President John F. Kennedy and Jacqueline Kennedy Onassis, who is buried nearby along their son, Patrick, and their stillborn daughter, Arabella. Kennedy's remains were interred there in 1967, a reinterment from his original Arlington burial site some 20 feet away, where he was originally buried in November 1963. The grave is marked with an internal flame. You have the Gettysburg National Cemetery, a U.S. national cemetery created for Union or federal casualties of the July 1st to 3rd, 1863 Battle of Gettysburg in the American Civil War. It's located just outside Gettysburg Borough to the south in Adams County, Pennsylvania. The land was part of the Gettysburg Battlefield, and the cemetery is within uh, the Gettysburg National Military Park. 
Um, the cemetery contains 3,512 interments from the Civil War, including the graves of 979 unknowns. It also has sections for veterans of the Spanish-American War, World War One, and other wars, along with graves of the veterans' spouses and children. Um, so my brother Bobby, the middle, the middle child, the middle, the one brother. who's actually pretty smart. Um, he was a Civil War reenactor. Oh, right. I forgot about that. Um, and so he and his like Civil War troop of mm-hmm. Union soldiers would go over to Gettysburg, you know, every year. Of course. And they would they would do the battles. And then he said his favorite thing after that was like to go to like Burger King with the rest <laughs> of his people uh-huh. dressed in their like full costume. Oh, sure. Yeah, yeah. For like and you know to Eat see burgers. people get like the double you know the double takes <laughs> like those ghosts are those ghosts <laughs> eating a eating a whopper <laughs> if i was a ghost i'd want a whopper i mean whatever man <laughs> why not um across the country you have okay. the hollywood forever cemetery it's one of the oldest cemeteries in los angeles it's um hollywood's only cemetery founded in 1899 on 100 acres and called very creatively hollywood cemetery <laughs> It was. It sold off parts of the original land to Paramount Studios around 1920, and part of the remaining land was set aside for the Beth Olam Cemetery, a dedicated Jewish burial ground for members of the local Jewish community. In 1939, a fellow named Jules Roth bought a 51% stake in the cemetery, which was the interment site of his parents. So he basically embezzled money from the cemetery's operation for <laughs> decades. By the 1990s, the cemetery began to show serious signs of neglect and disrepair. The crematory had been shut down in the 1970s, um, according to a ground supervisor. Uh, during Mama Cass's cremation, bricks begin to fall into the oh, crematory, no. like m- getting all mixed up in <gasps> with what they were doing there. Um, oh the God, California Cemetery Board was receiving regular complaints from families of people buried there, and some people even had their family members' remains removed and reinterned elsewhere, including Max Factor. Oh, yes, of course. Yeah. After Roth's death in 1997, the current owner discovered that the Cemetery Endowment Care Fund, meant to care for the cemetery in perpetuity, was missing about $9 million. Oh, my gosh. And the next owners, the Cassidys, bought it in the bankruptcy proceeding for $375,000 and gave it a complete refresh and makeover. But they also turned out to be running a Ponzi scheme by stealing millions of dollars from pre-need funeral hell? contracts. So that's the thing about like if a cemetery is not just like a municipal thing run by the city that people pay taxes into. Yeah. And it's a cemetery corporation instead. Oh, oh man. You kind of don't think about it. Yeah. No. And I think that's probably why that it seems to be so attractive to people who want to launder money through it because <laughs> no one's paying attention uh-huh. to private cemetery. I mean, who's who's thinking of private cemeteries? You know, maybe the IRS, but still, clearly, yeah. like, those previous people ran it, that problem for, they ran that, yeah. that scam for yeah. 40 years. Yeah. So, oh um, since 2002, Hollywood Forever Cemetery has screened films on weekends during the summer and on holidays at a gathering Aww. called Cinespia. Um, the screenings are held on the Douglas Fairbanks lawn where films are digitally projected against the west wall of the Cathedral Mausoleum that houses the crypt of Rudy Valentino, among many others. Up to 3,500 patrons per screening bring blankets, pillows, picnic dinners, and alcoholic beverages and enjoy screenings under the stars. There are also music events that take place in the cemetery throughout the year. They really are using it more like a public park. Yeah. Um, notable burials there include Mel Blanc, mm. um, Cecil B. DeMille, Faye Ray, John Houston, Bugsy Siegel, Dee Dee and Johnny Ramone, and Judy Garland. Oh. Um, but also speaking of um, cemetery corporations, Forest Lawn yes. owns the Forest Lawn Cemetery in Buffalo, but also a bunch of other cemeteries called, called Forest, Forest Lawn, Lawn. All, yeah. across the, all across the country. So Forest Lawn Buffalo was founded in Buffalo in 1849. Um, it has served as a cemetery, park, arboretum, crematory, and outdoor museum. Monuments, mausoleums, and sculptures have attracted visitors for more than 150 years. In 2004, Frank Lloyd Wright's 1928 design for something called the Blue Sky Mausoleum yep. was finally constructed. The mausoleum contains 24 crypts, which can be purchased and memorialized by individual owners. Uh, the Blue Sky Mausoleum is one of three Frank Lloyd Wright memorial sculptures in the world. Yes. Have you seen it? I have not seen it in person. Mm-hmm. Because when I was there, they had, when was that, 2004, 2004 you said they finished yeah. it? Yeah. They had the um, the Darwin Martin house that I was interning mm-hmm. at. They were like, oh, yeah, this just went up. Because I think I was I was interning there in like yeah. 2006. Um, 
so no, I didn't actually get to go and see it. Forest Lawn is very big. Yeah, I bet. Um, my dad used to run through there when we still lived in the Buffalo, in the city of Buffalo. Mm-hmm. He would go run through there because it's a Frederick Olmsted mm-hmm. designed park slash cemetery. And it's very beautiful. And there are a lot of famous people there. And I'm sure you will mention one of them. Yeah. Well, and I will tell you about how there I saw it. Include President Millard Fillmore. Yep. Politician Shirley Chisholm. Singer Rick James. Yes. Anson Goodyear, the first president of MoMA. Um, Darwin D. Martin. Yep. Like you said. Um, Willis Carrier, the inventor of air conditioning. And many, 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 many mayors of Buffalo. Oh, sure. I'm looking through the list and they're just like, blah, blah, blah. Mayor, Mayor of, of Buffalo. Buffalo. Yeah. Blah, blah, blah. Rick James, mm-hmm. I one day I went out there and I was like, "Bitch, I'm gonna find that Rick James <laughs> like tombstone." Uh-huh. Um, Forest Lawn, from what I remember, does not have. They have like a map, like a foldout yeah. map, but they don't have like here right. is where Rick exactly. James is buried, yeah. like that kind of thing. So you have to kind of find it. And I was expecting more from Rick James and his <laughs> estate. Like I was expecting it to be like covered in glitter and like uh-huh. be like flashy. It was just like a nice black granite tombstone. Does it say Rick James? It does say Rick James. <laughs> um, I think it's like Richard quotes Rick James, musician, blah, blah, blah. It's um, it's very unobtrusive. It's not huge. Uh, and I saw Miller Fillmore's, which is a little bit more. He's got like a column and all sorts of fun stuff. But it's a very beautiful cemetery. And we should go. We should go to Forest Lawn. Mm-hmm. And then we should go to the inauguration site. Agreed. So... Um, one more in America I wanted to tell you about is Mount Moriah Cemetery in Deadwood, South Dakota. So, uh, Deadwood was named after the dead trees found in its gulch and Mm. the entire city is a national historic landmark district for its well-preserved gold rush era architecture. Uh, by tradition, the American flag flies over the cemetery 24 hours a day rather than merely from sunrise to sunset. It's the resting place of Wild Bill Hickok, who was the well-known gambler and gunslinger who participated in many shootouts. Um, so when Wild Bill Hickok died, he was holding a pair of aces and eights, and that series of cards became known to poker players all around the world as the dead man's hand. Oh, okay. Um, also, Calamity Jane. Um, so she was born Martha Jane Canary. She was a tobacco-spitting, beer-guzzling, foul-mouthed woman who preferred men's clothing to dresses. Hell yeah. And also, like my favorite name of anybody I've ever heard from the Old West. Oh my gosh. Ready? Yes. Potato Creek Johnny. Yes. <laughs> oh, I found my soulmate. Oh, Potato Creek Johnny. Oh, Potato Creek. Uh, John Parrott, he was painting in Potato Creek when he found a leg-shaped gold nugget. And the nugget was reportedly <laughs> the largest piece of gold ever found in the Black Hills. The lucky prospector became an instant Deadwood legend known as Potato Creek Johnny. Potato Creek! Potato Creek Johnny. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. So he's buried there. He is buried there. God bless him. I don't know what happened to his nugget, but... Mm. Um, other famous cemeteries across the globe. You got Lake La Recoleta Cemetery in Buenos Aires, Argentina. Mm. Contains the graves of notable people, including Eva Perón, presidents of Argentina, Nobel Prize winners, the founder of the Argentine Navy, and a granddaughter of Napoleon. In 2011, the BBC held it as one of the world's best cemeteries. And oh. in 2013, CNN listed it among the 10 most beautiful cemeteries in the world. How nice. Also in South America, the Memorial Necropole Ecumenica. Wow. In Brazil, okay? It's one of the first places to implement a vertical cemetery concept. No. What? How? It is 32 stories high. No. Um, Ooh, I hate it. It was built in, in 1984, and it currently holds the Guinness World Record for the tallest cemetery. Okay, so sure. So basically, it's like a high-rise building. Filled with dead people. Filled with dead people. How is there not a horror movie about that yet? That's You should work on it. Ghost high-rise Working title. Working title. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I have to tell you about the Mary Cemetery. M-E-R-R-Y. Okay, like happy. Yeah. All right. It's a cemetery in the village of Sapanta in northern Romania. It is famous for its elaborate wooden Orthodox crosses, which depict the life stories, sordid details, and final moments of those buried there. Oh, it's cool. Displayed in bright, cheery pictures and annotated poems are the stories of almost everyone who ever died in the town of Sapanta. 
What? That's so cool. So the Mary Cemetery dates back into 1930, and it's the creation of a local artist named Stan Ion Patras, who is a woodworker, poet, and painter. For more than 50 years, Ion Patras created hundreds of crosses and tombstones. And after his death in 1977, his apprentice, Dumitru Poptinku, took the role. Uh, these grave markers often contain poems done in a rough local dialect about the deceased, as well as a painting of the deceased image, often including the way in which the individual died in the image. That's so um, cool. Most of the tombstones are made from oak and are dyed a very special blue color. So once you see a picture of this, like you won't ever forget it. Um, so here's a sample epitaph. Okay. Here I rest. Stefan is my name. As long as I lived, I liked to drink. When my wife left me, I drank because I was sad. Then I drank more to make me happy. So it wasn't so bad that my wife left me because I got to drink with my friends. I drank a lot and now I'm still thirsty. So you who come to my resting place, leave a little wine here. Oh my God. Isn't that really like I got super like chills. Cute? Oh my goodness. Yeah. That's really sweet. Yeah. Um, so Stan Ion Patras single-handedly carved, wrote poems for, and painted well over 800 of these folk art masterpieces oh during his life. Um, so by the end of um, the 1970s, um, the Mary Cemetery, as the town has dubbed it, was discovered by the outside world when a French journalist wrote about it. Um, so Stan Ion Patras's memorial says that he began making the crosses because he loved people and he still wanted to have people come and visit him even after he died. Aww. That's so sweet. <laughs> it's really cute and it's and it's more like like well you know everybody knows everybody else's stories yeah so it's like yep this guy fell died because he fell off a horse and then the pic hit the picture, picture on of is him like, is like a guy falling off a horse and it's like that's so lovely yeah, it's 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 like one of the one of the biggest tourist attractions in romania oh well so <laughs> put it on the of list. all the tourist attractions in romania <laughs> yeah yeah that's really cool yeah i love that just a couple more okay the city of the dead um, which is an Islamic necropolis and cemetery below the Matkatam Hills in southeastern Cairo, Egypt. The City of the Dead. Yeah. It's a four-mile-long, dense grid of tomb and mausoleum structures where some people live and work no. amongst the dead. No. Some reside here to be near ancestors of recent ancient lineage. Some live here after being forced from central Cairo due to urban renewal demolitions and urbanization pressures. In total, around a half a million people occupy the necropolis, filling the gaps around the final resting places of 7th century Egyptians. Oh my <sighs> gourd. Yeah. That's... Yeah, it's basically like it got too expensive and too crowded to live in the city, so they kind of migrated out and they're now there's a people. Now oh. there's half a million people living. They're they're mole people. In with the tombs. Yep. Mhm. Mm oh my mm -hmm. god. Yeah, so there are currently there are, you know, technically plans to relocate people out of the living cemetery, but no. the population has grown so large that there's almost nowhere to move them. It's greatly populated by children. Oh my god! And who have to deal with these morbid surroundings? Oh my gosh! Well, I guess you get used to it. Yeah. You know, I mean, like an acceptance of death is actually like a very healthy thing. Yeah. But still, like you know, you're not seeing a lot of sunlight. Yeah, it's not a great, it's not a great situation. No, it's not a great situation. And then finally, the the graveyard that we should all aspire to visit one day. Ooh, okay. The Ben and Jerry's Flavor Graveyard. Oh. In Waterbury, Vermont. I'm gonna cross. I'm gonna cross myself right so, now. So, for those of you who aren't American listeners and you don't know Ben and Jerry's ice cream, please, please go and get out. yourself a pint somehow. So, the Ben and Jerry's Flavor Graveyard pays tribute to the flavors that are no longer bites on your spoon because <sighs> they've bitten the dust. <laughs> the Flavor Graveyard exists in two incarnations on Ben and Jerry's websites around the world, and also at the Ben and Jerry's factory in Waterbury, Vermont. So there is a flavor graveyard with a, on a hill overlooking the factory, complete with granite headstones and witty epitaphs for each flavor. The physical flavor graveyard was erected in 1997, originally contained just four flavors, which only existed in the U.S. Um, Dastardly Mash, Economic <laughs> Crunch, Ethan Almond, and Tuskegee Chunk. Since then, the graveyard has grown to include 35 flavors, including Wavy Gravy, Dublin Mudslide, Holy Cannoli, and many more beloved departees with over 300,000 annual visitors to the factory they guess that as many as a quarter million mourners pay their respects <laughs> at the flavor graveyard each year uh we're also we've also been asked to pour one out for dave matthews band one sweet world <laughs> um actually i don't know if you heard about this because i am frequently on instagram and i see a lot of instagram ads they're hoping to resurrect a limited batch yes. and 
a couple of the flavors. There's like five that you can choose from. Mm-hmm. You have to vote. You have to go to the website. And what they include, chocolate cherry Garcia. And my favorite from not last <gasps> summer, but the summer before. Oh. Candy bar pie. I have never mm-hmm. tapped on a voting th- button on my <laughs> so phone many faster. Times. I was like, oh, <laughs> yes, candy bar pie. I, when candy bar pie came out, I had coworkers, friends. Mm-hmm. If you see candy bar pie, you get me that. Mm-hmm. I had Elizabeth, my coworker, Elizabeth, she was bringing me pints every week Ugh. and I would hoard them. I would yes. wrap them in plastic and I would shove them mm-hmm. deep into my freezer. And I mean, it lasted like I'll a go good vote. year. I'll go vote. It's so good. It's peanut butter. It's chocolate. Ugh. It's caramel. It's crunchiness. It's, it's delicious. It's delicious. It's refreshing. <laughs> it's so good. Oh, the <sighs> everyone and the people in the comments, yeah. they were like, bring back wavy gravy. They like, yeah. Miss Wavy Gravy. Yeah. That's a thing. I don't even know what's in Wavy Gravy. I don't think I know Wavy Gravy either. I don't know. But they kept referring to it as the gravy. Okay, I'm looking at okay. it. Okay. So Wavy Gravy is caramel cashew Brazil nut ice cream with a chocolate hazelnut fudge swirl and roasted almonds. So it's an old people Very flavor. Nuts. Yeah, it's an old yeah, people young flavor. Young people don't eat Brazil nuts. No. So it must have been old hippies that were mentioning oh, in the comments from yeah. Facebook. Like, bring back Wavy Gravy. The gravy. I miss my gravy. <laughs> so weird well those those everything i wanted to tell you about <laughs> about cemeteries and graveyards thank right you now. very much um you should know and i know you know this but the the listener should mm-hmm. know that i have a personal history with cemeteries because uh not only did i grow up near a cemetery you were born in a cemetery i was born near a cemetery <laughs> no i w- i grew up near a cemetery <laughs> out in gasport uh it's actually a very old cemetery. Some of the um, tombstones are from the uh, late 18th century. It's a very cool. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's not very big. It's pretty small. And also, I learned that our house is built on a Native American burial ground. <laughs> <laughs> oh, great. Yeah. So um, I just I just imagine that that has given me Im- implicit oh, power. Superpowers. Yes. Mm-hmm. Uh, but like not strong. Like I, I have the power of fire. Mm-hmm. And breast pain, mm-hmm, <laughs> I can mm-hmm. I can put breast pain on other people. And my sister yeah. dreams the future, but only in really boring ways. Uh-huh. Yeah, like I got a new pen. Mm-hmm. Oh my god, I dreamed this last night. I um I have night hearing. You have night hearing? Yeah. What does that mean? That's the that's the ability to hear things at night. <laughs> that's my power. As opposed to. As opposed to that's after eight PM, that's why it's funny. Lauren. You're completely deaf. <laughs> that's why it's funny. <laughs> yes, night hearing. I love that. All right, now for your quiz. Here we go. The quiz is called "What do you want on your tombstone?" This mm-hmm. is a quiz on pizzas yes. in the Wild West. <laughs> Question one: It's not just the French who have strict food appellations. In order to fit the formal definition of a Neapolitan pizza, its ingredients must include mozzarella de buffalo campagna, which is water buffalo milk cheese from Campania, and what specific variety of plum tomatoes? Question 2. In 1855, under the direction of then-Secretary of War Jefferson Davis, Congress appropriated $30,000 to import a certain even-toed ungulate to be employed for military purposes. Within two years, the U.S. Army had purchased 75 of these animals from the Middle East, and they were stationed in central Texas. What were these non-native animals who partook in this southwestern U.S. experiment? Question three. The first ever console video game with product placement was the 1990 NES game, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles 2, the arcade game, which was filled with advertising and came with a coupon for a free pizza from what franchise that was always making it great? Question four, also called Little Miss Sure Shot, what lady got her gun and used her shooting skills to impress international audiences in Buffalo Bill's Wild West show in the late 19th century? Question five. To summarize one popular episode of a 2000s TV show, a man named Michael kidnaps a teenage boy after confusing the names of two pizzerias in town, one good and one terrible. Name that show. Question six. This young boy, born Henry McCarty, grew up to be an outlaw and gunfighter who killed almost a dozen men before going on the lam and getting a $500 bounty put on his head in 1881. Who is this Wild West outlaw shot and captured by Sheriff Pat Garrett? 
Question seven. The Pizza Underground, a rock band that parodied Velvet Underground songs by replacing the lyrics with pizza-related words, was fronted by which actor who had previously ordered pizza on screen in two of his most memorable film roles? Question eight. According to legend, a supremely rich mine is believed to be in the Superstition Mountains of Arizona, named for German immigrant Jacob Waltz, who supposedly discovered it in the 19th century and kept its location a secret. What is the common name for this famous mine, which nearly 8,000 people attempt to find every year? Question 9. In 1995, a delicious quick-serve restaurant chain introduced the Treats of Pizza, a dessert pizza with an Oreo fudge crust topped with ice cream, sauces, and candy pieces. While tragically discontinued in 2008, it made a triumphant return in 2017. They'll treat you right if you go to what place for hot eats and cool treats to order yourself a Treats of Pizza. And finally, question 10. The most famous shootout in the history of the Wild West took place near the OK Corral in Tombstone, Arizona Territory on October 26, 1881. The feud pitted five cattle rustlers and horse thieves against one town marshal and three policemen. Name any two of the lawmen who faced the five cowboys in this gunfight, which killed three and wounded two more. I'll give you about a minute to think and we'll be back with your answers. Here we go. Question one. Here we go. You got this. I got it. It's not just the French who have strict food appellations. In order to fit the formal definition of a Neapolitan pizza, its ingredients must include mozzarella de buffalo campagna and what specific variety of plum tomatoes? That is a Roma tomato. Oh, it's not it's a Roma not. tomato. Do you want to guess another tomato? Oh, no. I don't know. Now I'm scared. Um... I don't know. What is it? A San Marzano tomato. Oh, San Marzano. They make the best sauce. Yes. They're the ones, they peel, they like flash mm-hmm. f- peel yes. for the canned tomato sauce. Oh my goodness. San Marzano, San Marzano tomatoes originate from the small town of San Marzano, Sulsarno, near Naples, Italy, and were first grown in volcanic soil in the shadow of Mount Vesuvius. In the U.S., San Marzano tomatoes are the genetic base for another popular paste tomato, the Roma tomato, introduced by the USDA in 1955. Compared to the Roma tomato, though, San Marzano tomatoes are thinner and more pointed, and the flesh is thicker with fewer seeds, and the taste is stronger, sweeter, and less acidic. Yep, and it's good on a pizza. Yeah. I honestly didn't connect until like two days ago that Neapolitan means from Naples. <laughs> oh, <laughs> that's okay. I kind of, I was kind of picturing like Napoleon maybe, I think it was the word that I was associating with yeah. instead of Naples. But I mean, it's a, yeah, because it looks like the spelling of Napoleon. Yeah. 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 Question two. In 1855, under the direction of then-Secretary of War Jefferson Davis, Congress appropriated $30,000 to import a certain even-toed ungulate to be employed for military purposes. Within two years, the U.S. Army had purchased 75 of these animals from the Middle East, and they were stationed in central Texas. What were these non-native animals? They're camels. They are camels. Yes. Uh, The U.S. had a camel corps in the mid-19th century. Um, I love it. They (laughs) wanted to use camels as pack animals in the southwestern U.S. It makes sense. Yeah. So the camels proved to be hardy and well-suited to travel through the region, but the army declined to adopt them for military use. Also, we had like the Civil War happen and they were like, we can't deal with these camels right now. So the Civil War basically interfered with the experiment and they they eventually like abandoned it and the animals were sold at auction. Just think about it. Like they were, uh, it worked. Yeah. If it weren't for the Civil War, 
we could have had like horses, camels. Camels would have been like, yeah, I got a camel for my kid. My kid really wanted a camel. So <laughs> yeah, just think what just could have been. What, what could have been. Mm. Question three. The first ever console video game with product placement was the 1990 NES game, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles 2, the arcade game, which was filled with advertising and came with a coupon for a free pizza from what franchise that was always making it great. Is that Pizza Hut? It is Pizza yes. Hut. Yep. Great. Question four. Also called Little Miss Sure Shot. What lady got her gun and used her shooting skills to impress international audiences in Buffalo Bill's Wild West show in the late 19th century? Uh, that is Annie Oakley. Annie Oakley. And uh, not to brag, but in high school, I was in Annie Get Your Gun. I was not Annie or anyone or the gun. with a name or the gun. <laughs> but... <laughs> But I was a um, townsperson number three. I was a townsperson who had a duet with Annie Oakley. And I was uh, presumably a madam who owned a brothel in town. So there you go. This tracks. Um, I'm sorry. What? Um, so she was born Phoebe Ann Mosey in 1860. Uh, wanting to use her shooting skills to serve her country, Annie Oakley wrote a letter to President McKinley in 1898. She offered to provide 50 female sharpshooters with their own arms and ammunition to fight for the United States in the yeah. Spanish-American War, but she never got a response. Uh, Similarly, in 1917, she contacted the U.S. Secretary of War to offer her expertise to teach an army unit of women shooters to fight in World War One. She again didn't hear back, so she visited hell? army camps, raised money for the Red Cross, and volunteered with military charities instead. Um, I'm sorry. Hi, I would like to volunteer my time as the best shooter ever uh-huh. to train a bunch of equally badass ladies mm-hmm. to shoot like hell for your war effort for freezies. I bet they were scared of her. I bet they were scared of her. Whatever. Wasted opportunity. Question five. To summarize one popular episode of a 2000s TV show. A man named Michael kidnaps a teenage boy after confusing the names of two pizzerias in town. One good and one terrible. Name that show. I have no... What is the show? What would you name the show? What would I name the show? Yeah, name the show. Uh, confused about... Pizza. Is it? Is the pizza bad? I don't know. I don't know what it is. What are we talking about? Bad pizza, good pizza? It's an episode of The Office. Oh, uh, I don't remember that episode. Okay, so it's the launch party. Okay. So they have their website, their new website, the sure. launch party. Um, and Michael, to celebrate, was going to order pizza for the whole staff. But he messed up the office's okay. favorite pizza place, which was Alfredo's um, Pizza Cafe, which is actually a real restaurant in Scranton. Uh, he messed it up with a terrible pizza place called Pizza by Alfredo, which was made up. <laughs> and turns out he bought the ones from the bad place and everyone was like, Ugh. so anyway, he has a coupon. And he ordered like, you know, 20 pizzas. And the the delivery boy, Kevin McHale, shows up to deliver the pizzas and he won't take Michael's coupon. So Michael locks him in the conference room. Okay, I remember this. Yes. This is also the episode where Meredith returns after um, with her fractured pelvis after she's hit yes. by Michael's car. Mm-hmm. And also the episode at the beginning where the where Michael's talking at the front of the room and they're watching the DVD yes. logo in the, on the screen. That's episode. Try it's to hit so the funny. That's the launch party. Okay. Yes, that is a very good episode. That's the episode. <laughs> Question six. This young boy, born Henry McCarty, grew up to be an outlaw and gunfighter who killed almost a dozen men before going on the lamb and getting a $500 bounty put on his head in 1881. Who is this Wild West outlaw shot and captured by Sheriff Pat Garrett? Was it Jesse James? No, he was killed by the coward Robert Ford. Oh, yeah, that's Remember? true. That's true. That's true. He was killed by the coward Robert Ford. Mm-hmm. Um um i can't think of it young boy young boy kid gorgeous kid Ooh, i see your face kid rock kid yes <laughs> yep kid rock kid rock 500 dollars bounty put Good. on his head finally wow man what a um what's his name billy the kid billy the kid he was a kid yeah i thought it was just because he had a baby face billy the kid All at right. some point he changed his name to william bonnie and oh, by okay. Billy the Kid. Um, when he was captured and put on trial in 1881 for killing a sheriff, according to legend, the judge told Bonnie he was going to hang until he was dead, dead, dead. And Bonnie's response was, well, you can go to hell, hell, hell. <laughs> that's a pretty Ooh. good, that's a. Yeah. 
I mean, he was like 19 years old. Yeah, yeah. That's I why mean, he, he was a kid. A shit. Yeah. Um, so a few years ago, there was a news story about someone who had discovered only the second known photograph of Billy the Kid. Um, oh, I it heard was about him, this. him like supposedly playing croquet with his gang of outlaws, and it was going up for auction for $5 million. Um, up to that point, there was only one identified photo of Billy the Kid, which was a ferrotype owned by businessman Bill Cook that had been passed down through the family of a friend of Billy the Kid. Um, the croquet picture has been up for debate, and various authorities have weighed in and they have not conclusively um proved that it is billy the kid I mean, but it made hard. it came out in the news like yeah you know, there was like wow they found this you know just like at a yard sale or whatever and it's you know the second photo of of this famous outlaw i mean it makes sense that if he wasn't like photography wasn't mm-hmm. huge not mm-hmm. everybody got their photograph taken and he would actively avoid that Yep. anyway yeah so yeah it'd be it makes sense that there wouldn't be any pictures of him but that is cool that it might be a picture of him yeah, it could be he has a very distinctive face like it's very kind of like slothy like very like oh, lopsided geez. like his like one eye is lower than his other eye oh, and his wow. cheekbone is a little changed like he has a very distinctive face when okay. you see it and so that's why if someone kind of saw this other photograph be like what but the? like oh wait that looks like somebody i i've seen before yeah that's cool Question seven, the Pizza Underground, a rock band that parodied Velvet Underground songs by replacing the lyrics with pizza-related words, was fronted by which actor who had previously ordered pizza on screen in two of his most memorable film roles? Uh, That is Macaulay Culkin. It is Macaulay Culkin. Um, Former band member Phoebe Crutes stated that they believed the Velvet Underground songs were actually written about pizza originally, (laughs) but had to be reworded to accommodate the standards of their day. Wow. So they performed such hits as Take a Bite of the Wild Slice. Wow. Etc. Okay. Yeah. That is a commitment to a bit mm-hmm. that I don't think yeah. I could really comprehend <laughs> as an adult. Yeah. <laughs> but um, they've broken up. Oh, they've that's a shame. Up. That's mm-hmm. too bad. Mm-hmm. Question eight. According to legend, a supremely rich mine is believed to be in the Superstition Mountains of Arizona, named for German immigrant Jacob Waltz, who supposedly discovered it in the 19th century and kept its location a secret. What is the common name for this famous mine, which nearly 8,000 people attempt to find every year? I do not know. I can't even begin to... It's the Lost Dutchman's Gold Mine. I have never, heard, never of this. heard of this. No. Okay. So people have been seeking the Lost Dutchman's Mine since at least 1892. The story goes that Jacob Waltz and a German friend of his stumbled upon the mine or were given directions to it from a Spanish miner named Don Miguel Peralta, whose life they saved in the 1870s. Um, Waltz would show up in Phoenix every so often with the largest golden nuggets and saddlebags full of gold, and then he would vanish for some time. Yeah. And then he would return again with lots of gold. Um, He also allegedly killed at least two men who trespassed on his treasure trove. By the winter of 1891, Waltz told a friend named Julia Thomas about the mine and died with a sack of gold under his bed. When word reached town, many of the prospectors rode out into the mountains in search of the seemingly bottomless mine. In the 20th century alone, at least a dozen treasure hunters died in their pursuits of finding the lost Dutchman's gold mine. Oh my God. So it's like the... um, People think that it actually isn't a made-up story. They think it is yeah. is actually out there yeah. in the Superstition Mountains oh, um, in Arizona, and um, it's like the last, you know, this big, this big lost gold mine. <laughs> wow. Uh, I mean, people will do anything for a quick buck. You know what oh, I mean? Oh, sure. Jeez. Question nine. In 1995, a delicious quick serve restaurant chain introduced the treats of pizza. While tragically discontinued in 2008, it made a triumphant return in 2017. They'll treat you right if you go to what place for hot eats and cool treats to order yourself a treats of pizza. Sing it with me, Julia. Meet me at the Deke. Yep. It's the Deke. It's the Deke. <laughs> for those of you that aren't us. And then that's Dairy Queen. Yep. Um, and as of this recording. AKA the Deke. Treats of pizzas are available with Reese's peanut butter cups, M&M's, Choco brownies, or Heath bars. Why are we not eating a treats of pizza right now, Julia? Because it was too hard for me to get to Henrietta <laughs> after work today. You know what? That is, honestly, <laughs> the fact that it's in Henrietta, the, uh, the cesspool of Monroe County, is the only reason why I am not at the Deke every... Why, why we don't weigh 480 day. pounds. <laughs> from just eating all of our know, meals that's why we're not deke. eating and eating like the chicken finger basket and a small i'm gonna have a blizzard for yeah. breakfast lunch and dinner <laughs> oh so good oh the deke <laughs> 
And finally, question 10. The most famous shootout in the history of the Wild West took place near the OK Corral in Tombstone, Arizona on October 26, 1881. The feud pitted five cattle rustlers and horse thieves against one town marshal and three policemen. Name any two of the lawmen who faced the five cowboys in this gunfight, killing three and wounding two more. All right, one. Wyatt Earp. Yes. Yes. Okay. Uh, I'm out. <laughs> uh, no, no, no. No. Um... I'm, my knowledge of the Wild West is very limited. <laughs> Who's the other ones? Okay. The town marshal was Virgil Earp. The oh, special geez. policeman was Morgan Earp. We also what? had special policeman Wyatt Earp. And temporary policeman Doc Holliday. Oh, Doc Holliday. Okay, yeah. I do remember him. Yeah. So uh, the cowboys there, they were like the Cochise County cowboys. They were named Billy Claiborne, Ike Clanton, Billy Clanton, Tom McClory, and Frank McClory. Were people just named... Like there were there just like seven names. I mean, they were all like the brothers. Okay, I guess. But like all the Earps and then Doc Holliday. Yeah, well, they were all they were brothers. Virgil, they're all Virgil all Morgan and Wyatt were all brothers. All the all the good all guys the, and all, all the bad guys were brothers. Yeah, respectively. Yeah. Okay. So the Earps were all good guys and they were all brothers. The Clantons and the McClories were each brothers and okay. they were the bad guys. You rode rode with your rode with your bros. Yeah. Um, so despite its name, the gunfight at the OK Corral did not take place within or next to the OK Corral. Well, then what the hell? Um, it took place in a narrow lot on the side of a photographic studio on Fremont Street, six doors west of the OK Corral's rear entrance. But that doesn't have as nearly as no. catchy of a <laughs> name. Um, so some members of the two opposing parties were initially about six feet apart. About 30 shots were fired in 30 seconds. Oh, no. Um, Tom and Frank McClory and Billy Clinton were killed and later buried at Boot Hill. Virgil and Morgan Earp were wounded and Doc Holliday was grazed. The feud didn't end there. In December 1881, Virgil Earp was ambushed and maimed in a murder attempt by the Cowboys. And in March 1882, a cowboy fired from a dark alley through the glass door of a saloon, killing Morgan Earp. The suspects in both incidents furnished alibis supplied by other cowboys and were not indicted. Wyatt Earp, newly appointed as deputy U.S. Marshal in Cochise County, then took matters into his own hands in a personal vendetta. Good. So that's your Wild West. <laughs> there you go. Thank you. That was very good. I, uh, I thoroughly enjoyed <laughs> the Wild West and the pizza one. <laughs> um, if you would like to get in touch with us, uh, you know, to talk more about the Wild West, teach me more about it because clearly I don't know anything about it. Tell us about your favorite um, kind of tomato. I'm partial <laughs> to the Roma myself, not a lot of seeds. Um, <laughs> uh, you can email us at misinfopod at gmail.com. You can tweet at us at misinfopod. Um, we also have a Facebook page, misinformation, colon, a trivia podcast, right on our wall. Or send us a message. And uh, we also have a website, www.missinfopod.com. Um, as always, you can find us on iTunes slash Apple Podcasts, uh, Google Play, Stitcher, and whatever podcast app you prefer with our RSS feed. Please rate, review, and subscribe. And tell a friend. Please tell a friend. So uh, thanks again for listening, guys. And you survived the spookiest month. <gasps> the spookiest <laughs> month, you bitch. All right. We'll Catch talk you to you next later. time. Bye. Bye.